Well, last week we picked up Genesis 1 through 11, and today we're going to finish up the book of Genesis. Like we said, this is uh, one of a few chapters or books, I think, that we're going to take two weeks, so we'll finish the last 38 chapters of Genesis uh, this morning. But uh, if you wouldn't mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer very briefly here. Heavenly Father, um, I ask your blessing on uh, everyone who's gathered here this morning, who braved the weather and the roads. Uh, got up a little earlier than normal. Um, bless our time here, Lord, that we might understand you better, that we would see your plan for redemption uh, for your glory. And it's in your Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's do a quick recap of some of the things we mentioned from last week. I think, uh, does everybody have a handout? You'll see I made it a lot easier instead of making you fill it out. Everything's on there already. Okay. So Moses is still our author. Does anyone remember what type of genre this is from last week? Historical narrative from the back. Thank you. Unlike Genesis 1 through 11, by the way, these last 38 chapters of Genesis won't cover 2,000 years of history. We're only going to cover 200 years and we'll begin with Abraham, who was named Abram. That's where Genesis 11 left us off in the genealogies. We're going to cover his life and then the lives of his descendants, just four generations. We'll, we'll finish with the death of his great-grandson, Joseph. So as far as historical time frame, we're going from about 2,000 years before the Messiah came to 1,800 years before the Messiah Again, the main theme of the book of Genesis roughly parallels that of the entire Bible, and it is God's plan to save mankind from sin for his glory. If you remember, God had created all things, and he proclaimed them very good, including his relationship with man, whom he'd created in his own image. Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship with God, and then something happened. They disobeyed God. They sinned, and everything changed. And if you recall, God condemned their sin, and he declares a curse on the physical world. And he also declares a curse on the serpent, Satan. And in Genesis 3.15, we'll pick up here, because this is going to play an important role in what we talk about today. He says, I will put, he's saying to the serpent here, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, or your offspring, some versions say, and her seed, or her offspring. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And you'll remember what we said, that within this enmity, God has included a somewhat dim, but a definite promise of a redeemer to come. It means the seed of the woman will war against the seed of the serpent. One day, the seed of the woman would prevail, and of course, we know who was that seed. Jesus, the Messiah. And we saw God's steadfast commitment to uphold that plan through Adam and then through Noah, and we'll see that play out today as we pick up with Abram. So if you'll turn, those of you that brought your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to read uh, the first three verses, and you'll see in your handouts the life and times and God's dealings with Abram, who will be known as Abraham, are chapters 12 through 23, and we're going to see the outworking of this plan through God's chosen people, the Israelites through something known as the Abrahamic Covenant. And we'll spend a lot of time camping on the Abrahamic Covenant because it's really, really important. And I'll be relying, by the way, heavily on commentary from a man named Colin Eakin, 
who wrote a book I highly recommend, God's Glorious Story. Any Christian that wants to understand uh, the narrative of God's redemptive plan through Scripture, uh, it's a great resource. So let's read here. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth, and you in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So right here in this very short passage is what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. Like I said, we're going to spend a lot of time slowly picking through this and unpacking it because it's really important after Moses had spent uh, the first 11 chapters covering 2,000 years of history, he really slows down here and he focuses in on God's dealings with this one man, Abram, and this covenant. And I'll quote Dr. John MacArthur. I, I quoted him a little bit last week. He notes in this covenant something interesting that I really like. God's verbal assurance, I will. We see it five times in this covenant. If you look at those three verses, I will show you, I will make you, I will bless you. I will bless others through you and I will curse those who curse you. So five times God's repeated here, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. So we know, this is important, this is not some kind of a mutual agreement between Abraham or Abram and God. It's an unconditional covenant. Unconditional covenant. It's an unrestricted one-way promise from God and you're going to see that and you'll hear this. He alone has the power and the authority to do what he's promised and you'll see that today. So let's move from Genesis 12. God's going to expand a little bit on this covenant promise. Chapter 13, if you look at verses 14 and 15, the Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give it to you and your offspring forever. So in chapter 12, God had not only promised Abram a nation and a blessing, and that through his descendants, God would bless the world. But here in chapter 13, we see God promising Abram and his descendants what? Land, yeah. In all directions, and if you look in your handouts, you'll see that this land encompasses quite a bit. All of Israel, all of Jordan, Syria, parts of Egypt, a lot of uh, the northern part of Saudi Arabia, and pretty much the southern half of Iraq. So this is a very real earthly blessing that God is promising Abram. Then he declares in verses 16 and 17, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So again, here we see God repeating the words, I will, I will, I will. It's like he's saying, look, this is, this is what I'm going to do. So again, this is not an agreement between two parties. There are no conditions it's a straightforward promise, one party to the other. All right, let's move to Genesis 15. This is a really important chapter to understand this Abrahamic covenant, so we'll spend a little time here. Look at verse 8. 
Abram asks a really honest question, and I can imagine why he's asking this. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And if, if it were me, I'd be thinking, um, did you really say, okay, so you're talking from the Mediterranean coast up to the Euphrates River, all the Mesopotamian Valley, north to south, where all these people live, you're going to give that to me? How, how can I really be sure this is going to happen? This is where it gets really, really interesting. God's about to show Abram how he can know, and there will be no doubt as to his intentions. God responds in a very interesting, unexpected way, at least for us. He tells Abram, bring him a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And when Abram's gathered all these animals and he brought them before the Lord, God tells him to cut them in half, except for the the two um, birds, leave them whole. And about this point, Abram probably knew exactly what was happening. Because you see, the Hebrew word for making a covenant is brit. Am I saying that correctly? Our Hebrew scholar, Michael Diesel, brit, which means to cut a covenant. So in the Old Testament days, when people made a promise between themselves, uh, they sealed it in blood. This was a very, very serious thing. Uh, They would get animals, they'd sacrifice them, cut them in half, put the two portions on either side, and together they would walk through it. Um, We don't do that when we buy a house with our banker, but that's how they did it. It was sealed in blood. It was very, very important. That's why it's called cutting a covenant. So when Abram heard what God was asking him to do, he probably understood full well what was happening. God was making a promise using a very visible, symbolic ceremony to affirm this covenant. Now, typically, when people would cut a covenant... Both parties would walk through, but something different is going to happen here. In Genesis 15, 12, we read that as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and God speaks to him, and he's going to prophesy. He's going to tell Abram exactly how this covenant promise is going to pan out in the time frame. So listen really carefully what he says. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God is literally telling Abram what's going to happen in the next 400 years. Remember this next week, our brother Glenn is going to pick up the book Exodus, and when he explains what God's plan is for these people, you'll remember that right here in Genesis 15, Abram heard what was going to happen. So be looking for that. Then verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This represents God, both as a smoking pot and a flaming torch as he moves through the portions of animals being sacrificed. And he's moving through the pieces alone. And this is significant. Look in verses 18 through 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, 
and the Jebusites. All this land is promised to Abram and his descendants. But notice that Abram never passed between the pieces. Why is this? It's because it's not a conditional covenant, right? It doesn't depend on Abram for any of this. He's kind of what you could call a, just a passive recipient of the blessing here. It's God's will to initiate this covenant and to fulfill this covenant. And that's why he repeatedly says, as MacArthur notes, I love this, I will, I will, I will. So in a sense, God's saying, look, this is what I'm going to do. It's set, it's done. I'll give you this land. It's very important to understand. And again, just like we saw in Genesis 13, this is a literal, earthly, physical aspect of the promise. You see God describe the boundaries of the land. This correlates with what he said in Genesis 12, by the way. God told Abram, remember, that through the families of the earth, um, everyone will be blessed. So this isn't some kind of just ethereal, uh, spiritual realm promise. This is an earthly blessing coming to the descendants of Abram. And this section of scripture just really can't be understood in any way other than God's promising Abram land. God defines the specific boundaries. He describes the rivers. He even mentions the people that are living there. And contrary to what you know, some people think today, this is not just some future spiritual blessing that's promised to the church. And this doesn't seem really ambiguous to me. It seems very clear. Of course, we know right now that the people of Israel haven't possessed this land, have they? They never have. I mean, we've seen a return of the nation of Israel to, to uh, Palestine, but if you look in your handouts, I mean, it's a very, very small portion they occupy. It's like they've decided to take this on themselves. God surely has not given everything that he's promised, but God's good to his promise, isn't he? So I'm willing to bet that this is going to happen at some point. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's jump to Genesis 17. Look at verses 4 through 8. So now Abram's 99 years old. God appears to him and he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And he goes on in verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So here again, sound like a broken record whenever the Bible repeats things when God repeats things that's a point of emphasis and and he's repeated this over and over I will I will multiply you exceedingly I will give you land I will be your God they're all over the place in every one of these declarations that Abraham is given by God and then uh, in verse 13 God adds this at the end as if we're unsure of this so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And then in verse 19, he says, speaking of Abram, or Abraham, sorry, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. So again, uh, if you haven't picked it up, it should be fairly obvious, God is permanently 
binding himself to his oath. And as J.D. pointed out, I have this in the notes of my Bible, um, September 2017. J.D. points out that that it was a 25-year period from the time that God had made this covenant until they would actually see the fulfillment. And we'll talk in a minute about their their son Isaac that is uh, given to them as an heir of this covenant. And in the meantime, they decided that they would take matters into their own hands. About 10 years in, they started wondering, I know I I see Roberta shaking her head. It's a lot like me, though. This gives me great uh, uh, hope, knowing that they, too, lack faith. But about 10 years in, they thought, well, surely this promise isn't going to happen like God said it. It was going to. At this time, as J.D. taught us, uh, if the head of a household didn't have offspring through his wife, it was customary that they could have relations, the father could have relations with the servant woman, and any heir that she brought forward would be adopted, and then that would be the person that got the blessings of the father. So Sarah hatches this plan. She says to Abraham, take my servant Hagar, and of course, They sleep together, she's impregnated, and Ishmael is the result. But this is not the plan that God had for them. And we'll see here in a second what really happens. By the way, you can imagine there was no small amount of marital strife from this little family unit that resulted a lot of angerness, a lot of bitterness, a lot of jealousy. So there was sin, there was a lack of faith. But let's skip to Genesis 21. Now we're introduced to the second patriarch. By the way, when I say the word patriarch, I had to Google this. The patriarchs are three people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just for the record. Second patriarch, Isaac. We read this in the first two verses of 21. Even though Abraham's wife, Sarah, was elderly and had been barren her entire life, it tells us this. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. And then verse 5 goes on and says... Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And this, I think, was a turning point for them. They had seen God's promise fulfilled 25 years after the fact. Let's move forward to a time after this son, the heir to the covenant, was born. To a time when Jacob, we think, if my notes are correct, what you told us, we think it's about 17 to 22 years of age when Isaac, um, in this next story, happens. Verse 1 in Genesis 22 opens with these words. After all these things, and it's pointing back to all the events that had happened in Abraham's life from chapter 12 to where we are now. After all these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there has a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And Abraham did something I seriously doubt any of us would be able to do. He took Isaac, his long-awaited son, his only son, whom he loved, and he placed him on an altar on top of wood, and he bound him, and he was ready to sacrifice him. He took a knife out, and he was just about to sacrifice his son, and God stops him. And he offers a substitute sacrifice. There in the bushes, a ram was caught by its horns. I've often asked myself, how in the world could could Abraham do this? If if God asked me to take my son Tim, who I loved, and sacrifice him, I, I don't know, honestly, how could I do that? But the Apostle Paul, we have the benefit of 
the New Testament sheds some light. This gives me the answer. Hebrews 11. He says that by now, Abraham's faith in God's promises was, had grown to the point, obviously, where he believed that even if he sacrificed his son Isaac, that God would fulfill his promise that an heir would come. And all these covenant promises would come through him. And so he believed in great faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Then, well, as we say at Journey to Judea along this point, by the way, I like this, uh, that God was testing Abraham here. And in doing so, he was providing an illustration that the promised redeemer that we've been talking about would come right through the line of this boy Isaac. And you see, Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son because one day, God would sacrifice his. Isn't that amazing? Okay, let's look at verses 16 through 18. God's going to reaffirm his covenant promise to Abraham. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and you've not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And it's interesting if you look there where it says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's not a plurality. That's a single person because it doesn't say the gate of their enemies, but the gate of his enemies. So who is that talking about once again? It's a single offspring, right? The Messiah. Uh, Paul affirms this interpretation in Galatians 3.16, by the way. All right, let's move on. Let's go to um, the second patriarch's life now. We've been introduced to Isaac. And his life, as your, as your notes say, um, is encompassed in Genesis 24 through 28. And this is a famous story of Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, who have twins, right? You remember Jacob and Esau, And uh, by the way, just like happened in in Abraham's house, his father's house, Isaac's house also was troubled by a lack of faith and a lot of sin. There was some conflict there. These were not perfect men, but God chose them. It's amazing. Because of all the mistakes that he made, uh, like his father Abraham, he didn't get to see the fulfillment of the promises, but he doesn't die without an heir through which God's covenant promises will be fulfilled. So typically the firstborn, which in this case would have been Esau, would be the heir to the covenant, but that's not how it pans out, right? His younger brother Jacob will be the heir. God in his providence has decided the younger brother is going to be the one who the plan of redemption will will follow through. Now why is this? We're going to stop here for a minute because this is really, really important. God chooses... Who will be his? God chooses who will be his. This is one of the most challenging doctrines in the entire Bible. It's called the doctrine of election. A lot of you are familiar familiar with this. But it's important we talk about this while we're still here at the beginning of the Bible. It's the doctrine that some will be given grace. And those some are chosen by God purely on the grounds of his grace. And it's not on the grounds of anything they've done. Not church attendance, not baptism, not circumcision not good works, not good deeds. It's his grace. So 
the reason God chose Jacob wasn't because he was more righteous. Um, he was actually, if you read all these chapters about him, he was kind of a sly, deceitful little opportunist. He'd actually lied to his dad to get the birthright. So he was not the greatest guy. You know, He was a sinner just like all men, like me, like us. So if we, if we think that God chose Jacob because of his righteousness, then we'll be a little confused as to what happens later. Um, and again, I love having the, the hindsight, uh, uh, the benefit of the New Testament authors. In Romans 9, Paul explains this. So check this out. Romans 9, 10 through 12. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So did you catch that? Before they were even born, God had predetermined that it would be Jacob, not because of his goodness, but that God's purpose in election might stand. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, we see this verse called out again by Paul, not by works, because, but because of him who calls. So remember kind of the theme that, that I said last week is the theme that resonates throughout the whole Bible. God's plan to redeem mankind from sin for his glory. For his glory. It's not about us. It's about him. Amen? So this is a critical theme being unveiled through this family. Isaac and Jacob, yeah, they were certainly uh, physical descendants of, of Abraham, but that's not why they got to be a part of God's people. It's not the basis of that alone because God called them to faith and that's just part of his plan. Um, again, we don't have any rights over God and I'm sorry to belabor this point, but we're all rebels, right? We're all sinful. Um, if we get anything from God, it's because of 100% pure divine grace and that's to his glory because out of his grace that he grants us sinful people the right to be chosen that's amazing that's a gracious kind god and that's to his glory amazing amazing so okay through the family of isaac we just learned a little bit more about god's plan of redemption didn't we now let's zero in on his son isaac's son jacob the third generation of the patriarchs see what we can learn here as the the story of the seed of the woman continues here God and Jacob, uh, his story is Genesis 28 through 35. Oh, by the way, we also learned that Jacob, this patriarch, had a pretty complex family tree. <laughs> had multiple children with multiple wives, and, and again, obviously, he had a severely troubled family life. And by the way, when we read about his four wives, it's important to understand, this always confused me, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, what's happened here is being described. Moses is describing it. It's not prescriptive saying, look, this is what you should do. So the fact that he had four wives, this was not a command by God. And the strife that he had in his family, just like his forefathers, was a result of his sin. Remember in Genesis 2 last week, when God created man and woman, one man for one woman, that was the origin, and that's where we get the definition of marriage. So the Bible is not telling us we should have polygamy. Just wanted to get that straight here. And Jacob suffered because of this. So let me recap a second here. Let me reset. Abraham had one legitimate son, right? Isaac. 
Isaac had two sons, but only one of the twins, Jacob, was chosen, the younger one. And from Jacob now, we'll see the promise of a great nation, Israel, will come through him. Not because he was a great, faithful, sinless man, but because God chose him. Let's look at Genesis chapter 35, verse 10. God's going to rename Jacob. He says, no longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And then, get this. God's going to restate the covenant promise he made to Israel's grandfather. Look at verses 11 and 12 in Genesis 35. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave Abraham... And Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then the chapter ends with Moses once again giving us some important genealogical data. You look in verses 23 through 26, we see, like I mentioned, that Jacob has 12 sons through four wives. Did I include that graphic in your handouts, I think? It's very small, but they're numbered on there, the 12 sons. One of these children who came through Jacob's wife, Leah, was named Judah. Let's bookmark him. Let's bookmark Judah. We'll come back to him. God's going to continue the promise of a redeemer through that son. But uh, we're going to focus on one of the other sons here. We're going to focus on Joseph. We're going to move to Genesis 37 through 50. Because this is where Moses draws our attention now. This is a, a pretty moving and amazing story. Those of you that remember J.D. preaching through this, I learned a lot from this. It was very cool. Uh, Jacob was the favorite son, and his brothers did not love him. You, know, they had, you, can, you can see the family tree. There were some um, stepmoms and half-brothers, and it wasn't all copacetic. They hated him because he was the favorite, and they did a horrible thing. They actually took him and dumped him in a pit and left him for dead. And then, of course, they had a, a crisis of conscience, and they said, well, no, let's not leave him for dead. Let's, I know, we'll sell him into slavery So they sold him to slavery. He goes to Egypt. And then through God's amazing providence, he ends up being kind of the de facto prime minister for the Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Amazing. Pharaoh puts him in charge of all the food supplies for the nation of Egypt. And then a famine hits, and it threatens not only the whole Egyptian country, but also God's people. Remember Judah and all the other brothers and Jacob? They're still back in the land of Canaan. That line is threatened with extinction, but lo and behold, Joseph's wisdom and foresight makes it possible for the nation and the nations to survive. And Joseph, of course, credits God. But isn't it interesting to see in God's providence, I mean, it's always his plans, you know, he thwarts the plans of men, but he has put Joseph here, and it's interesting, this is amazing to me, he was to bring partial fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant, as we'll see. See, Joseph won't be in the line of Israel. He's not going to be the one through whom the covenant is directly um, upheld. But because of him, God preserves and delivers the brother that would preserve the covenant promise of a nation. And through the rest of his brothers, 
The nations. Isn't that amazing? It absolutely amazes me. And let's take a minute. Let's look back at what uh, Joseph says. After all these years, his brothers actually don't recognize him, as you remember. Then he's going to reveal to them, and he's going to say something profound. Um, Chapter 45, if you look there. Verses 4 and 5. Here's what he says to them as he's telling them who he is. Genesis 45, verses 4 and 5. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be distressed. We're angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He makes sure and points out that they sold him here. They have to be accountable. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Later, if you look in chapter 50 now, verse 20, he also tells them this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And I often comment, uh, you know, I hear a lot of Christian people, when something really good happens to them, have you ever heard this? People will say, oh, that's a total God thing. And I want to say, what I think Joseph was saying here, everything is a God thing. You know, can you imagine being thrown in a pit and then pulled back out only to be sold into slavery? I mean, where is God in this? Well, he knew exactly why God had put him here. Those covenant promises and the Abrahamic covenant, God has a plan. It's not our plan, but he works it all together for good. Let's uh, go back to, well, Genesis 49 again. Keep moving here. So now all the 12 sons are together in, in Egypt. And Israel, formerly known as Jacob, is going to pronounce prophecies to each of the 12 sons. And we look in verses 8 through 12. He prophesies this, that Judah's brothers would praise him and that his hand would be on the neck of his enemies. Sounds a little like Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? And that his father's sons would bow down to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so again, these promises are foretelling of a ruler and as we'll learn later, an actual king for the people that would come through Judah's descendants. And in Matthew chapter 1, we look at those uh, genealogies of Jesus. We see that this king would come through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah on down through Judah's descendant, King David. It's pretty important. King David promised that one of his offspring would rule forever. See how this all works together? Jesus, as you know, throughout Scripture, the New Testament, people would call him the son of David. And he's also referred to as the king of kings. Amazing. So, this has been an amazing journey through three generations of patriarchs and then also down into the fourth generation with Judah, with Joseph. We've seen God's plan of redemption here beginning to unfold and it really seems to be picking up steam here. God's people... The line of his promise, these people that we look to, I always thought that these guys were like awesome, unbelievable, faithful men, but they weren't like J.D. pointed out. They were just like you and me. They, they doubted. They had lapses of faith. But God, in his great mercy and grace, chose them for a purpose, his purpose. He kept them intact. Let's look at the very last verse of the book of Genesis. Verse 26. So, 
Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Placed in a coffin in Egypt. Back in chapter 46, God himself had appeared to Jacob to convince him to go down to Egypt at his son's invitation. And surely he knew the theological consequences of this. I mean, this was the promised land that had been promised to Abraham. This was a covenant sealed in blood. And so this was a no small thing, leaving the land that had been promised. So as we end Genesis here, again, we're witnessing the beginning of God creating and preserving his own people. And again, this nation of Israel, these people, we emphasize it wasn't because of anything that they possessed, no special characteristic that they had that was different than anyone. God chose them because that's what he decided to do. So, they're not home yet, though. We're ending the story here in Egypt, and we'll have to wait until next week, Glenn, uh, when you show us how God acts to bring his people back home. So, what would be missing? We always want to ask this. What would be missing if we didn't have Genesis 12 through 50? Like we saw last week when I asked that question about Genesis 1 through 11, the answer was, a lot, right? I think it would be a lot here. We wouldn't have a nation. We wouldn't have Israel. That's pretty significant, right? Um, we wouldn't understand the blessing or the very real repeated promise of land. Finally, we'd be missing another critical point in history when God promises one very influential man, Abraham, that through his body, through his line, will come the Messiah who would bring salvation to Israel and then to all the people of the earth, including us. Amazing. So remember, this covenant, we stress this covenant, it was unilateral and unconditional. It's entirely initiated by God and its fulfillment will be and currently is still utterly dependent on him. Amen? All right, let's close the book of Genesis and I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is amazing, amazing the plans you have, the plans you've had through history, the plan you have for us to rescue us. And Lord, help us to understand this concept that it's not anything that we bring to you. Uh, we all lack faith. I know that I am such a sinner. I don't deserve your love, your, your mercy. And yet you pour out your grace on us. And it is to your glory, Lord. Shows us who you are. All of our plans... You overcome. I pray, Lord, that we would just be still and know that you are God and we would trust in your promises. Lord, I pray that through the reading of your word and as we learn from your word that we would understand more clearly not only who we are but who you are. And from that understanding that, that a right response would be drawn, that we'd, we'd worship you, we'd repent, ask you to forgive us. We know you do when we do and that we would worship you properly. And we praise you, Lord, for everything that you've done to make our salvation possible through your Son, the Messiah, whom you've, you promised would come and who did come. And we eagerly await all of your promises, Lord. And, and um, we just praise you. And uh, we ask your blessing on what we've taken up today. Through your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.